Well, I'm delighted uh, to be with you here today, and I want to thank very warmly Dr. Patrick for the invitation, and I bring you greetings from Redeemer University College in Ancaster, Ontario. But I've heard for a long time uh, about Augustine College, and at last I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to be here and especially to speak on this occasion, which I take to be a very, very important occasion in the life of the academic year. As ritually and ceremonially, you mark in a formal way all that has gone on here at Augustine College over this past year. Now, uh, Dr. Patrick didn't tell me exactly how long I have to speak, So uh, that's quite a range I was given, so you will just have to wait and see. If it's boring, you can just indicate, and I'll draw to a halt very quickly. But uh, I hope not to speak too long, and I can see the clock on the back of the church hall, so the church. Now, you know what I want to reflect with you on a bit today, and and I don't know at this stage an enormous amount about Augustine College. I met Dr. Patrick. I know uh, friends of mine who have been very influenced by him, but uh, so I'm not exactly sure of the ethos of the college and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. So I may say some things which will provoke you, but I gather from what I've just heard that'll be just fine. Okay. And, you know, what I want to do is to reflect with you uh, today upon the significance of Christ as the clue for the university today. And I want to remind you, and I'm sure many of you are well aware, that the university was virtually in history an invention of the Christian church. And of course there's debates about which was the first university and so on and so forth. But if you go, as I was privileged to do for two years, to a university like Oxford University, and I would go regularly to visit my cousin in London. And you know, I always knew that I had arrived back at Oxford when there were spires across the whole horizon. And to this day, when I go to Oxford, it is as though I just drink in the architecture. It's so powerful. And of course, the architecture uh, powerfully evokes the Christian context out of which Oxford emerged. The spires point irrevocably towards the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All the marks of Christian culture are there. And yet, in these great institutions like Oxford and Cambridge that came out of the Christian uh, Middle Ages, there remains very little left of any attempt to take Christ really seriously in the academic disciplines of the day. It's become a sort of Christian heritage. But the architecture remains, and it bears witness to a time when Christ was taken with the utmost seriousness in Western culture, to a time when Christ was indeed regarded 
And I take these words from one of the great missiologists of the 20th century, Leslie Newbigin, who says, Christ is the clue to all that is. And Oxford and Cambridge and other places like that bear witness to a time when Christ was indeed regarded as the clue to academia in the university. And you know, we are heirs to that tradition. And there's a sense in which when you go to Oxford or Cambridge or you come to Augustine College or go to Redeemer University College that you are being handed on, however inadequately, something of that tradition. And I think there is a tremendous call upon our generations in the West today to recover this extraordinarily powerful and uh, uh, evocative vision of Christ as the clue to the university, Christ as the clue to academia. And so I want to share a little bit about what I think that means for us today as uh, we take that vision seriously. Now, in 2003, Gerald Gruff published an influential book called Clueless in Academe, How Schooling Obscures the Life of the Mind. It's an interesting title, isn't it? Clueless in Academe, How Schooling Obscures the Life of the Mind. And Gruff tells how in the 1950s, as far back as then, he took courses at his university in romantic literature and introductory sociology back-to-back. And do you know what the image that he comes up with is the image of volleyball? He says when he went from the literature class to the sociology class, he was bounced back and forth like a volleyball between incommensurate paradigms. But as he states, what was striking about my experience was how little cognitive dissonance there there actually was. Since the perspectives of the literature and sociology courses never came together to be compared and contrasted, they remained in separate mental compartments, leaving my exposure to divergent viewpoints incomplete and unconsummated. And in a chapter entitled The Mixed Message Curriculum, Graf has sections with headings like The Student as Volleyball. You see, bounced from one paradigm to another one with no attempt to try and connect them or to make them into a unity. And contradiction and compartmentalization. And Graf explores this and he laments it And as part of the solution and in hope of developing intellectual community and intellectuals, Graf asserts that, clearly, it is crucial to begin providing students with a more connected view of the academic intellectual universe, one that lets them recognize and enter the conversation that makes the universe cohere and relates it to the wider world. Now, I found this very intriguing that already in the 1950s, Graf experienced the fragmentation in the university 
that is all over the place today and which comes under the overarching term postmodernism. And there can just be no question that since the 1950s, the problem has got infinitely worse and not better. The Catholic philosopher and ethicist Alistair McIntyre, in his great book, After Virtue, compares the contemporary ethical landscape in which we live to one in which shards, little pieces of scraps that remain from something great, are scattered all over the place. And ethicists, experts in morality, try and connect these shards. But they have, says McIntyre, no understanding of the traditions in which the shards are embedded. And the result is a kind of endless, wild fragmentation that dominates contemporary public universities today. And similarly, the moral theologian from Britain, Oliver O'Donovan, in his book, The Ways of Judgment, he compares our time to one in which there are great big icebergs floating all over the place, but no one any longer has any idea what holds the icebergs together. Fragmentation, wild pluralism, postmodernism, the student as volleyball. Now, you know, if the Christian university, the Christian college, and Christians in academia are to fulfill our potential in the 21st century, we have to do so against this backdrop of this fragmentation, this wild pluralism, these incommensurate paradigms. If we are going to achieve our potential and to serve Christ and pursue that clue which is Christ in this context, what ought our priorities to be? And I want to simply suggest a few of them to you. The first is that we will have to make a priority intellectual coherence, showing how our Christian faith and the knowledge that we pursue and gain, how it all coheres together. Only thus will we escape the volleyball syndrome. Graf says that education needs to start providing students with a more connected view of the academic intellectual universe, one that lets them recognize and enter the conversation that makes the universe cohere, that brings it all together. And this surely is something that is at the heart of the Christian mind, the Christian worldview, the Christian academic, the Christian university. In his The Idea of a Christian Society, T.S. Eliot, the famous poet, has much to say about education. And in my opinion, he rightly notes that any apologetic which presents the Christian faith as a preferable alternative to secular philosophy, which fights secularism on its own ground, 
uh, now he says this, and this is controversial, I happen to think it's right, is making a concession which is preparation for defeat. He says, T.S. Eliot, should we not first try to apprehend the meaning of Christianity as a whole, leading the mind to contemplate first the great gulf between the Christian mind and the secular habits of thought and feeling into which, so far as we watch to fall and uh, to fail to watch and pray, we all tend to fall. Now, in the language of the Reformed tradition in which I come from at Redeemer, although I myself am an Anglican and an Anglican priest, uh, we would say here that Eliot fingers what we call the antithesis, that rift that runs through the creation between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And what Eliot is saying, and I think he's right in this, is that a sense of the antithesis means that we need to start our reflections upon education from an intentionally Christian perspective. Only in this way is there hope of achieving a university as what has become throughout Canada and North America uh, the common public multiversity in which volleyball is regularly played with the minds of students. And you know, I would argue that in fact, when it comes to education, we have no choice as to whether we start with a faith commitment or not. The only question ultimately is which faith commitment do you start education with? In my own opinion, uh, the notion of neutrality within education is a myth. And some of you may know uh, Roy Clouser's book, The Myth of Religious Neutrality. And I think ultimately when you dig down in academia, you will find that in the very foundations, there is always some foundational clue that is being followed in the quest for knowledge. And Newbigin says, and I want to say today, that Christ is the ultimate clue to all that is. And when it comes to education or any other sphere of life, that is the clue with which we must begin. Now, you know, I like that phrase, Christ is the clue to all that is, because on the one hand, it avoids the simplistic Jesus is the answer, to which one is always tempted to reply, yes, and what was the question? But, you know, uh, uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists in particular love that one, Jesus is the answer. But I prefer Newbegin's, Christ is the clue. Because on the one hand, it avoids any suggestion that Christians have all the truth immediately through Scripture. There's vast amounts of things that the very best of us remain ignorant of. So identifying Christ as the clue rather than the answer humbles us just a little bit in a way that we sometimes need humility. But at the same time, it alerts us to the fact that Christ is indeed the clue to the whole of reality, that you will not get hold 
of a healthy, proper understanding of the whole of reality unless you start and you always return to this clue which is Christ. In the words of Proverbs, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And as scholars of Proverbs have suggested, that beginning means starting point, foundation, the place from which knowledge of the whole of the cosmos can be opened up in all its riches. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where you have to start. It doesn't provide all the answers, but it provides the clue that will eventually enable the jigsaw puzzle to come together. Now, the clue is there, and it is the clue. And I want to say to the graduates in particular uh, this afternoon that I think, if I understand it correctly, the call on your and my lives, if we go into academia, is that we are called communally, that is, together, not simply as individuals, but also as individuals, to pursue that clue which is Christ in the realm of academia with all the rigor and passion and uh, and force and energy that we can muster. That is the task that is upon us. Now, what does that mean in more practical terms for us today? And I want to suggest uh, several things that it means for us today. First of all, it means that we need, I think, to recover if we need to, or to deepen if we already have it, an intimate knowledge of the biblical story. You see, Leslie Newbigin says, the way that you pursue that clue which is Christ is by, he uses the word indwelling, the biblical story. I love that expression. Now, you know, especially when you move around the world, I grew up in South Africa, I'm now a British citizen, and now I'm living uh, uh, in Canada. You know, geography starts to take on whole new meanings to you. And Leslie Newbigin says, you know, we are confronted in our culture, and if you go to a public university, Uh, let alone, you'll find this also at Christian universities, you will face this very powerfully. On the one hand, there's the biblical story about the world, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. But there are a multitude of alternative competing stories in our culture. And uh, Mike Goheen and I wrote a book together called Living at the Crossroads, an Introduction to Christian Worldview. And we got that idea from Leslie Newbigin that the Christian, and this is what mission is about, and if you go into academia, you go to a public university, you will find yourselves at the crossroads. It's the intersection of the Christian story, which through your baptism and conversion, you have pledged ultimate allegiance and the story of the culture in which you live. And mission is always lived out right at that tense intersection between the Christian story and the cultural story. 
Now, of course, there are ways in which the Christian story agrees with the cultural story. But increasingly in our secularized West, the stories conflict in the most powerful ways. And that is why missiologists have always reminded us that to live faithfully at the intersection of the Christian story and your cultural story is to live in a place of unbearable tension. And Leslie Newbigin said, it is above all in the realm of education in the West today that that place of unbearable tension is felt most strongly. And so for those of you in particular who go on now to secular institutions, one of the things I hope uh, someone will ask you fairly regularly is are you every now and again tasting that sense of unbearable tension? If you stop having that experience, it may well be a sign that you have become dulled into the acceptance of the cultural story. If you go on to public universities, Christian universities, as I know, have all their own sets of challenges, but the public universities is where the volleyball has gone wild. And if you're going on into that context, you will be called to live faithfully at the crossroads, at that place of great tension. And then you will need to know the biblical story intimately because it's the biblical story that must become your story that you reference yourself by. You have to become so at home in the geography of Scripture that it's your natural place from which to orient you in God's world. (coughs) Some of you may know the uh, author Anne Lamott, who has written some quite uh, interesting books. The one of hers that I like is called Traveling Mercies. And she tells the story in that of the church she was attending, and they have uh, an Afro-American pastor and uh, lots of Afro-American families, a wonderful church as she describes it. And the pastor told them a story, uh, a woman pastor, that when as a little girl she got lost in her town, And the policeman picked her up, and he drove her around, and she couldn't work out how or where she was. And then she saw her church, and she said to the policeman, you can let me out now, I can always find my way home from church. And you see, that is what the biblical story has got to become like in our lives. It's got to become the primary narrative, the grand narrative within which we, which we indwell and out of which we live and out of which in our academic and the other parts of our lives we passionately pursue that clue which is Christ. And then secondly, and I don't know to what extent uh, you have attended to this at Augustine College, Uh, In my own opinion, it's something that is much uh, neglected uh, almost across the board in Christian scholarship, but maybe you are the exception. I don't know. So you need to be at home in the Bible. But then a big thing we have to attend to is how Scripture functions authoritatively in Christian academic work or in academic work. 
So yes, we confess that the Bible is the infallible word of God, but when I'm doing psychology or philosophy or sociology or medicine or linguistics or history, how exactly does Scripture function authoritatively in the acquisition of knowledge in these disciplines? It's one of the most crucial questions, and it is one of the things that Christians have not done the hard work on, in my opinion. I occupy at Redeemer University College the H. Evan Runner Chair in Philosophy, and Evan Runner was a quite controversial philosopher at Kelvin College, and years ago he published a book called The Relation of the Bible to Learning, in which he tried to unpack this topic. But it's not a topic methodologically that a lot of people focus on, and yet it's of fundamental importance. Now, you know, postmodernism is a double-edged entity. I think there are great things that postmodernism has brought, and I think it's exceedingly dangerous. You should never critique it simplistically. There are insights, but there are very, very damaging dimensions to it as well. But it has helped us in some ways to get a much better grip on the fact that acquiring of knowledge is not a simple thing. And some of you will know of the philosopher Karl Popper. And Karl Popper has a very important essay in which he has two different images for acquiring knowledge. Now, sadly, in my opinion, a lot of Christians, I think, still stick with the one image which most people think now is wrong, and more importantly, I think it's wrong, okay? And that's the bucket theory of knowledge. This is his first image. The bucket theory of knowledge says knowledge consists of acquiring facts. So just as you go to the beach and you pick up stones and shells and shove them in your bucket and you get home and you rearrange them, That's what knowledge is like. You get your bucket, doesn't matter what type of bucket, and you collect all your facts, and then you arrange your facts logically. That's the bucket theory of knowledge. Now, in my opinion, postmodernism has fairly successfully driven a bus or a train through that approach to knowledge. Now, the other type of approach, which I think is the more accurate one, is what Popper calls the torchlight approach to gaining knowledge. And that alerts you to the fact that knowledge is never the fact of just picking up neutral facts. The light that you shine plays a tremendously important role in how you see what you're looking at and what you collect in your acquisition of knowledge. Now, do you know, I like this torchlight approach because it alerts us to the fact that your conceptual frameworks with which you study something are hugely influential in terms of the goals that you arrive at. And you know, uh, some of you, like me, uh, wear glasses, And the terrible thing about glasses is you don't look often at the glasses, you look through the glasses. And so every now and again, I'm sure like me, you can't find the wretched glasses because you don't look at them, you look through them and you put them down. But you see, this is what postmodernism has been successful in doing, alerting us to the fact we all have glasses on. 
And it's not just, you, you mustn't just attend to the facts you're studying. You've got to attend to the framework that you bring to the knowledge that you are looking for. Such a framework is unavoidable. The only question, in my opinion, is which framework we are working with. And uh, students and faculty, in my opinion, desperately, at Redeemer, I, I cry out for this, that we would become attuned to the conceptual frameworks at work in our studies. And you know, one of the things, if I may just say so, at Christian institutions, and I don't know Augustine, so I can say this uh, without knowing whether it's true or not, but Christian colleges have a vested commitment to not allowing the differences between faculty to emerge. Because the assumption is it has to be unified. And so what you get at Christian institutions, at least to in some extent at places like Redeemer, is a secret volleyball. You see, at the public university, it's public, it's out in the open. The Christian colleges, we all assume it's unified. Often it's not because many of our profs have studied under the best secular minds out there in Canada and North America. And they haven't done the hard work of integrating their faith with their, their study. And so those conceptual frameworks remain in place. So one of the things I want to alert you to the importance of is not just to what you study, but how you study. Not just to acquiring knowledge, but learning to ask the right questions. Neil Postman, very provocative writer, says, the form in which we ask our questions will determine the answers we get. All the knowledge we ever have is a result of questions. And Postman goes on to note that the most difficult words in any discipline are rarely the polysyllabic ones. You know those great big jawbreakers that your profs come with. Those generally aren't the most troubling words. Do you know what the most troubling words are, according to Postman? The simple ones, like true, false, fact, value, law, good, bad. And in education, if we really want to educate, in my opinion, sometimes it's more important to teach students how to ask the right questions than it is to keep teaching them the right answers. And I call those basic foundational questions rocket questions. They're questions that give a discipline lift off. They're always operating, but they're very rarely attended to. And so we will need to attend to how Scripture relates to other disciplines. Now, you know, I just want to say one major thing in conclusion, and that is that uh, the project of Christian academic work is absolutely exhilarating. I hold a chair in philosophy. I'm trained as a biblical scholar, so I work in these different disciplines. There's nothing in all the world like doing it in an overtly Christian fashion, in pursuing with all that you have this clue which is Christ for the truth about his world in which we live. But I do want to urge uh, you as you graduate one uh, point of caution, and that is 
that we are not called just to be people who live in our heads. The great danger of academia is it's so exhilarating that we're in danger of becoming big heads and the rest of us becomes small and shrunk. And so uh, a thing that has become very important to me is that the academic journey must be part of a journey which goes deeply and experientially and to the core of your being into Christ. You know, the, 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 the person who spoke on behalf of you all posed the question, what will sustain us in this journey? It's not brilliance. It's not going to the finest universities that will sustain you. What will sustain you is what sustained Mother Teresa in her service of the poor. It's what sustains people like Jean Vanier in the founding of L'Arche. It's Christ. And what sustains a lifelong academic journey which brings glory to God and bread and not stones to the people of God is a journey that goes year by year deeper and deeper and deeper into Christ. And so I do just flag that up as I conclude, that the life of the mind is a glorious thing when it's in the service of Christ. But even as you get excited about it, make sure that at a deep heart level, it is taking you more and more deeply into Christ. And that will energize the academic journey and keep it on track with all its challenges of living at that place of unbearable tension for the rest of your lives. I wish you well in the journey ahead. Thank you.